to the Novel Universe Podcast, a monthly YA Lit podcast hosted by Dawn Abram and Elise Martinez, YA librarians from the Chicagoland area. Each episode features reviews and rants on new and upcoming YA books. We're here to help you navigate your TBR pile. What's good, what's bad, and everything in between. I'm Dawn, the criticizer of books. And I'm Elise, the rejecter of romance. So turn up the volume. Here we go. where we are reading Ninth House by Lee Bardugo. And in this episode, we will be discussing chapters 12 through 19. I know the show notes said through 18, but chapter 19 would have been a really bad cliffhanger to leave off on, so I just continued on through chapter 19. And next week, I will be talking about chapters 20 through 26. So these are spoilers. If you have not read it, I would suggest you not listen to this podcast. You can read along with me, so you can start at the beginning and read the first, I believe the first six chapters or first five chapters and listen to our discussion and continue on like that. (coughs) Excuse me. So without further ado, here we go with chapter 12. Okay, so in these chapters... I'm on my Kindle, so I will probably never say page numbers because I don't have page numbers on a Kindle. Uh, So I'll be going by chapter and I might say midway through towards the end of the chapter. And in this chapter, we have Dawes and Alex are going to Wolf's Head because she needs to talk to the bridegroom. And one of the things that stood out in this chapter is I feel like we get a little bit more insight into Alex and who she is. And when we meet Alex in chapter 12, Salome is being a dick. She is not holding up her end of the bargain. Alex has brought her a statue that they got stolen and all she wants to do is use their ritual site and Salome is not letting her, she's not letting her in the door. And when Alex sees this, like I said, it's midway through the chapter, she's like looking at Salome and she's like, Salome probably thinks, you know, I'm just some lonely ass freshman. I'm an apprentice in this Leith organization. I have no standing. When I'm with Darlington, I was in the br- in the background. Why would she take me seriously? But something in her snapped and she's just like over it. And in her head, she says, maybe if Leith had rescued her from her life sooner, she could have been that girl, meaning the Yale girl, kind of like Lauren, her roommate, Lauren, the epitome. Maybe if she, maybe if the Gluma hadn't attacked and Dean Sandow hadn't ignored her, she could have kept pretending to be that girl. So to me, the important word in that whole little section was the word pretending. Uh, all this time, Alex has been trying to be quote unquote Lauren, her roommate, this, you know, this Yale girl and she walks around with her her sweaters that say yell on it and she's going to intern with bell bomb and you know stay over the summer and just you know really study hard and graduate and but all this time she's just pretending to be this girl because this is not who she is and she's starting to realize that this is what's happening she's just pretending and she's she's fed up with it and so she like grabbed salome and was like look that's not how this is gonna work i did something for you you do to do something for me and i like how bardugo kind of puts in alex's backstory a little bit how she had to run drugs and if she didn't pay up 
then there are consequences. And it kind of aids in Alex's character. Like her threatening Salome is not out of nowhere. She comes from the streets and so she's kind of adapting to her surroundings. And speaking of surroundings, so further on in this chapter, Alex says, the snake in, well, the narration says, the snake inside Alex stopped twitching and uncoiled. So clearly snakes are important to this book. There is a snake on the cover. It has significance. And here we're really starting to see outside of the book and snake house, we're really starting to see the significance of a snake and how when Alex was pretending that snake was dormant, but now as she's stopped pretending and she's becoming who she really is, that snake is uncoiling and twitching. She also got rid of her snake tattoos on her throat. Um, and I'll get into that a little bit later. But I looked up what the significance of snakes are and what they symbolize. With the exception of Book and Snake, which symbolizes commerce, snakes, um, they have a couple of meanings. Snakes rely on their surroundings and vibrations as a compass to find its direction, and which I think Alex is doing all the time. At the beginning of the book, she's like, it, when she's first entering Yale, she's sussing it out and she's adapting to her surroundings. Um, now she's encountered Salome, who's being uncooperative, and now she has to adapt again to her surroundings. When she was a kid, you know, she was on the streets and there were, I believe, I don't know if it's chapters 16 or 17, where she is with Len and she performs a sex act on this man to make him happy. She's adapting to her surroundings again. So she's constantly doing that. Another thing that snakes symbolize is rebirth. And one can argue that Alex, when she went from the streets to Yale, it was kind of a rebirth for her. Um, and snakes also symbolize transformation, which we'll see in chapter 19. Um, when she transforms into ghosts or not ghosts, but she transforms into another being when ghosts enter her body. So snakes, um, while you're reading, if every time snake, the word snake appears or slither or uncoil, I like to stop and really think about what Bardugo is trying to say, because I think everything she writes is purposeful. It all means something. So I trying to think about when Alex first got on campus, she was constantly hiding. She wore big clothes and we later found out it's because she's hiding her tattoos. And one of the biggest tattoos she has is on her neck. She has two snakes on her throat. And so, you know, why would she want to hide her snakes on her throat, her tattoos? Is it shame? Is she afraid of being judged as an outsider like Tara? I think we can all infer why she would want to get rid of her tattoos. Um, but I do believe at some point she's going to let her tattoos come out again because she's, she's done pretending. She's starting to be who she really is. And I like books like this. Um, I know a lot of people don't like Ninth House for their own reasons. And that's totally fine. You're totally, a, you're, you know, everyone has their own opinion and you can like or dislike a book. We're all humans that way. I dislike books all the time. My nickname is Criticizer of Books. And one thing that I, I like to do is if I dislike a book a lot, but I know that it's a very popular book and other people really love it. I want to know what I'm missing. What did I not get where everybody else is loving this book and I didn't? So case in point is A Curse So Dark and Lonely. 
all I hear is everyone loves, 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 loves this book. And I freaking hated that book. And I have my reasons why. But I really want to know from these people why they loved it so much. So if you did not like Ninth House, this is the reason why I loved it so much. This is going to be in my top 10 of the year. I will be posting my top 10 in on Saturday. So you will see it is it is fairly up high on my list. And this is why I like Ninth House for the very section that I just talked about with Alex, being able to look at a character and really pick her apart and why she says the way that says the things that she does when she's constantly looking at herself and saying she's pretending what is she pretending what is this whole thing with snakes why does she have a snake tattoo and why does she want it eradicated and why is there a snake in her gut like you know not literally figuratively speaking but I like books where the author makes you think where you can have a intelligent discussion about symbols and metaphors and characters and the world and this type of stuff for me is action i enjoy stopping and googling the importance of a snake and the important the importance of queen mab and all these little things that bardugo includes in her text i like alex a lot i know a lot of people don't like her and she is an unlikable character on purpose but I like her a lot because I feel like a lot of us can relate to her. She, especially in this moment where she says she's done pretending, I think a lot of us at some point in our life were living our lives pretending to be something that we're not because we wanted to fit in, whether it was in high school, we wanted to fit in with other people, whether we don't want to be alone or, you know, we just want to be liked, whatever the reason is, a lot of us have done a lot of pretending. And just like Alex, I mean, her circumstances are a little bit more dire than many of ours, but she's done with that. And at some point in our life, we have to be like, you know what? I'm done. I'm done pretending. And I like her character for that reason. I think she has a lot to say. She's very interesting. Um, so that is why I like this book, because there is so much to discuss and to look at and to learn and that's all I'll say about that. I'm going to keep going as I continue with my review. You will kind of see because I'm going to gush all over this book. Sorry. Um, but that's kind of the overall reason why I like these types of books in general. Okay, so let's get to Darlington. In chapter 13, excuse me while I swipe through my Kindle to get to chapter 13. Chapter 12 is a long ass chapter. In chapter 13, Darlington... Um, he keeps saying this town. He keeps referencing this town. And we learn some more about Darlington's backstory. And there have been several instances where Bardugo has put this town in quotes. And I'm not quite sure what she's trying to say here. This would be where another person to discuss this with would be beneficial. But he, I, I can sort of guess that you know, Darlington is on his own. His parents have abandoned him. You know, his parents are alive, but they've left him and he feels abandoned. And I believe New Haven has Yale smack dam in the middle of it. And Yale is an Ivy League prestigious school. And the surrounding town is slowly crumbling. Um, you have these 
really fancy stores blended in with these mom and pop stores and there are pockets where there are slums and ghettos and then there are pockets where there are like McMansions, um, which a lot of towns are. And I think that he's very much connected to his town, to this town. His family is a part of this town and it's, it's losing, it's losing something. It's losing how, what it could be and how great it is. And he wants to make it great. I don't know. I don't, it's almost as if fixing this town, which is his mission is to really like do a lot of research into New Haven and find out where the ley lines are and all the supernatural stuff. It's like fixing this town is cathartic for him. He's kind of fixing himself. I don't know. That's all I can come up with as to why this town is so important to him. Maybe it'll become more apparent as the book goes on. I know I've read the book already, but honestly, I don't remember the little details. I remember the big stuff, but I don't remember the little details. So this is a little detail that might become a little bit more clearer to me as I read it a second time through. The other thing I noticed um, in this chapter is that his name is Danny. They call him Danny and he's changed his name to Darlington, which I find interesting again, because as I've said in previous podcasts, he's 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 looking for something he wants something he envies people who are like Alex who have these abilities to see grays and he wants to see gray so badly that he's mixed this concoction and almost killed him he wants something he needs something his life is not complete and so for him to change his name once again this is just speculation could mean that he wants to be more important than he is because a name like Danny, you know, there's nothing wrong with the name Danny, but you know, it's a common name. Whereas Darlington, a name like Darlington carries so much weight. It's so, it has so many adjectives associated with the word Darlington. It's powerful, it's sexy, it's sophisticated, he's mysterious. You know, Darlington, a person who's named Darlington walks in the room, you're like, ooh, who's that guy? His name's Darlington. Like, it's such a great name for a man who's not, who doesn't consider himself to be great. So he's kind of using this name to kind of boost himself up a little bit. Once again, this is my own speculation. If you have your own theories, please feel free to share it. But I like that little detail. And once again, this is the type of stuff that I like when I read books. The fact that he's his name is Danny, but he has changed it to Darlington. And Bardugo could have very easily gave him a stream of conscience where he goes on and on and on and on about why he changed his name to Darlington. But she doesn't do that. She allows the reader to do it for on our own. And that is a critical read. All right, let's move on. Um, also in chapter three, um, so we do, like I said before, we find out that he mixed this elixir because he wanted to see Gray's and he almost killed himself and he landed in the hospital, much like Alex. That is where Sandow found him. He wasn't legacy. He wasn't Yale bound as we all perceived him to be. He got there the same way Alex did and he found purpose in his life. Leith is his purpose and I'm gonna come back to that at the end of the podcast. But Leith is his purpose now and he loves it and he's not gonna let it go. And um, so like I said, I'll come back to that. So I did find another piece in chapter 13 that was really interesting. I'm not quite sure what she means by this. Um, once again, speculation, but in the middle of chapter 13, uh, when we're reading about Darlington's backstory, he says, 
The hard times had begun with a series of factory fires and ended with the discovery of a process to successfully waterproof leather. Arlington rubber boots were sturdy and easy to mass manufacture, but miserably uncomfortable. When Danny was 10, he'd found a heap of them in the Black Elm attic shoved into a corner as if they'd misbehaved. So I feel like this, once again, I, I've said this before, I don't think Bardugo throws in little details like this just for happenstance. I believe she's trying to do something with this. this I'm not sure if this is some sort of a metaphor, but... Um, so Arlington rubber boots were sturdy and easy to mass manufacture. I feel like that could be a metaphor for Darlington and the type of boy he quote unquote is. Um, when we first meet him, we have perceived him to be, you know, wealthy and privileged and important and powerful when really he's not. But we have perceived him to be and a lot of people also have. And boys like him are a dime a dozen. They are mass manufactured like Blake and... Um, What's his name? Eden, Aiden, when Lynn's group and um, uh, Ariel, like those men, there are a lot of them around. However, they're miserably uncomfortable. They don't like themselves. And that's why they treat people like shit because they feel like shit. Um, and then we say that, oh, she says that he found a heap of them in the attic of the Black Elm shoved into a corner. And I'll come back to that because I have a theory about that as well. Hopefully, if I remember where that is. Okay, so yeah, I just wanted to make that little point. So moving on to chapter 14. Um, notable things I found in chapter 14 was Tara's tattoo, rather die than doubt. Um, not sure what that means. It'll probably come back. Also, we learn a lot about the bridegroom's backstory. So this is the big chunks that I remember. So FYI, if you're reading along with me, just pay attention to his backstory because it is important. And then in this chapter, this is the party where Blake assaulted Mercy with the Merity drug. Um, that was come that came from one of the houses. Okay, chapter fifteen and chapter sixteen, we have Alex is calling in favors from. Um, she's calling in her favors because she's going to you know take care of what happened to Mercy, and we also find out that manuscript that party where they drugged him we find out that an alumnus made them do it we don't know who but I feel like obviously that's important um somebody is out to get Darlington I think it has something to do this is my own theory once again I have read the book but this is a detail I don't remember so I think it might have something to do with him looking into the bridegroom's story and maybe he got too close and got too much information and they're trying to shut him up. Much like they're trying to shut up Alex with the Tara murder. Um, so Alex gets redemption um, for Mercy with Blake. And in this section, we get another thing about the snake uncoiling and becoming warm and comfortable and I think this is her this is her moment where she's just done pretending now this is who she is this is growth and this is this is the new Alex that well this is the Alex that we're going to see going forth we're still going to see like pre disappeared Darlington but in post disappeared Darlington this is who we're going to get she is she is she is a beast and you better get out of her way basically so what I found interesting about her growth is that I think in a normal book, 
or not a normal book, but a, a book, a conventional book, a growth would be growth would be Alex going from California streets to Yale and she's you know she's made it out of the streets she's going to school she's her grades are up she's wearing that sweater that says Yale on it she's doing that intern she has made it she has grown however in this book that is not growth in this book growth is her realizing that she is not that Yale girl. She is Alex Stern and she gets shit done. She's an Avenger. She's an Avenger of ghosts and abused women and get out of her way. That is her growth. And I like that it's unconventional. Like I said, in a standard book, the growth would be she graduated from Yale and she lived happily ever after. Maybe, maybe not. But you know what I'm trying to say with that. So I like that whole thing about growth and how it's a little different than what we're used to. I'm really not going to get too much into the party just because the party scene, what she does to Blake is not important. Making him eat shit is basically literal. She's making him eat shit and die, <laughs> not die, but you know what I mean? Um, so I'm not really going to talk about that. It's pretty obvious what she did, what she's doing there. She's avenging her friend. And, you know, she's making that asshole eat shit. And I don't, I think that's pretty obvious what she's doing there. It's a little bit of fun that Bardugo put in there as redemption. Chapter 17. So one thing I picked out about this in this chapter, it's not, I'm not going to go really go into it. I just thought it was interesting. Um, so after the whole Merity and Blake thing people are whispering about her and like oh my god she's a witch what did she do people are like what kind of person is she she's very mysterious they don't know much about her but she's trying to solve this mystery and she doesn't want to come across as crazy quote-unquote crazy because she's already been seen in the streets acting bizarre and she says and in, in the beginning of chapter 17 which I thought was a very interesting quote um, did she seem depressed? She was distant. She didn't make many friends. She was struggling in her classes. All true. But would it have mattered if she'd been someone else? If she'd been a social butterfly, they would have said she liked to drink away her pain. If she'd been a straight A student, they would have said she'd been eaten alive by her perfection. There were always excuses for why girls die. I like that quote. Like I said, I'm not going to really get into it much. I just thought it kind of stood out in that chapter. It was interesting. But at the end of chapter 17 is where we get some hella foreshadowing. Um, Darlington has seen something in her and we keep seeing the words let, let us out and let me in. We've seen that a lot, much like this town. But now we get an explanation as to what that means. And wait a minute, let me see. Okay, so... What Bardugo does, which I like, is she foreshadows the next chapter. So we don't really have to wait too long to find out what she's talking about. And so in the next chapter, in chapter 18, we find out what she's talking about. Darlington has told her that they need to go on an assignment. And it's an unusual night to do this, which once again, I think that I think they were both set up. I think that he says that it's a portal, but it's not a portal. I think that they were both supposed to go through there and disappear forever. Um, 
once again this is speculation this is a small detail even though it probably shouldn't be small but it's a detail I don't remember my first time reading through so yeah I'm thinking that, that was a setup by an alumni that we don't know who it is but what I like about this chapter is that Darlington has figured out that Alex has murdered all those people at that house and we see the confrontation through Darlington's eyes and not through his POV and not through Alex and through him he he sees her reaction and it's very cold and unremorseful and it's very chilling and as he's telling her I'm going to have to turn you in he can he's imagining that she is becoming erratic like in her head not not visibly but she cuz he's he's surmising that she is spiraling because she's going to get told on and her time in Leith is over. And but her reaction is just nothing. It's very blank, kind of like a sociopath. And I like that Darlington is going to tell on her because as I said earlier in this podcast, Leith means a lot to him. It's all he has. He wants Leith to love him and it doesn't love him back. And we talked about that in our second podcast. And he has convictions and he is going to protect Leith from this girl who can do something that he cannot. He cannot see Grays. He almost killed himself to see Grays. He would kill himself to see Grays and she can do it and it he does not like it. So in a way, he's jealous of her and he's like, mm, I got you now, girlfriend. I'm going to tell you. Now, of course, he's not saying that um, out loud. He's not really inferring it in text. But this is just kind of what I picked up on as reading his character. And because, and this part was just like amazing, because Alex has found something. At this point in the book, she's still pretending. She has stopped pretending post Darlington. This is this is current. Darlington is currently alive, quote unquote alive. And she's still pretending at this point. She still is hanging on to this dream that she has got out of the California streets. She is in Yale. She is going to intern with Bellbaum. She is going to do it. And he is about to rip it all away from her. And she does not stick her hand out to help him when he falls. And I was just like, oh my God, she let him go. She let him go. And I'll get back to that at the end of the podcast. But that was, that was amazing. She just let his ass fall because he's about to tell on her. So they both have their own little like mental processes going on here as this major event is happening. Okay, so chapter 19 is the big chapter. And this is where we find out what happened at that house. Um... One thing I liked about this chapter is we meet Ariel, kind of. We don't talk to Ariel. He doesn't talk to us. We only see him through Alex's eyes and Len, kind of. And Ariel is a bastard. And what I thought was interesting about this is that Len wants to, he, he needs approval from Ariel, Ariel. And... What Alex says to him is, it's the beginning of chapter 19, the survivor in her understood that there were men who liked to see other people grovel, like to push to see what humiliations the needs of others would allow. 
there were rumors floating around Antian's place. Okay, that doesn't mean anything. But she's telling Lynn that Ariel is laughing at you. He doesn't like you. He could give a shit about you. But Lynn is wanting so hard to be liked by this guy. And it just kind of shows that a shitty man is a shitty man. He's not just shitty to women. He's shitty to everybody. And Ariel is that guy. Once again, he's, like I said before, he's that mass manufactured man who is miserably uncomfortable. So I just kind of like that she threw in that little bit about Len and just wanting to be approved and liked. Um, in this chapter, we also see where she she has to she does a sex act on a man and she's looking at herself in the mirror and she she says what does 15 look like was another alex going to slumber parties and kissing boys at school dances she could climb through the mirror above the sink and slide into that girl's skin which i i you could be another snake reference you know snakes shed their skin so you know she wanted so much to change her life and she's looking at herself in this mirror much once again many of us have done that we've looked at ourselves in the mirror and we thought what could my life be where is there another me out there doing something else with their life that's better than this um so i like this little development of alex um and then we find out what went down at the party and this is where she lets heli in and she kills everybody at this party. Um, this part was really sad. I think this is probably one of the saddest parts in this whole book because when she thinks Heli is okay and she goes to lay down for the end of the night and Heli is laying with her, it's her ghost. It's not even her. And it's so sad because she sees her corpse across the room and she couldn't help her she couldn't she couldn't she couldn't help her because she she didn't know that she was dying and the trauma of this and her way of redeeming heli is to help these other girls including herself so tara mercy and herself and that's that's not a new plot device but the package that bardugo has put it in has made it refreshing and interesting um and it was really sad. I, I shed a couple tears in that chapter. Um, one thing I noticed as I was preparing for this podcast, as I'm reading through my notes and the story, the name of the house that was in California was Ground Zero. And I totally missed that the first time through. And I'm like, oh my God. I mean, I know what Ground Zero is, but I had to look up the official definition. And it means a starting point or base of some activity. And damn, that was the starting point of this whole book was Ground Zero. Is that a little on the nose? Maybe, but I missed it. And some of you may have missed it too. So, you know, for some people, they probably picked it up. I did not pick it up right away. Okay, so that's the end of what I read for this section. Um, this section was great. It just keeps getting better for me. I'm enjoying all of it the second time through. And just to sum it up, uh, this the section that I read, I wanna talk about Alex. And in the first podcast, the first thing I said about her was that she's a liar and she's an unreliable narrator because of that. And damn. 
this girl had us all snowed. So this entire time, she knew exactly what happened to Darlington, but she has not divulged any knowledge of anything to any of the characters or to us as the reader. She has been lying to us the entire time. And that is fantastic that Bardugo was able to keep that up. And that also makes her, once again, an extremely unreliable character because not only was she lying about knowing where Darlington went or how he got there, but also this whole murder. Like we knew that she knew what happened at that place possibly because she was there. I mean, she could have been unconscious. Maybe she didn't remember. We don't know. But now we know she was the cause of all of it and she knew it. And the fact that she just kept all that information from us it's freaking great. I love all of it. Um, I also like that we get a little insight into more insight into why she's afraid of Grays. I think after we read that bathroom scene, we assumed it was because she was afraid of being assaulted again. She realized that they could touch her now because before then she could just see them and they didn't interact with her, but now they can touch her. But now we know that they can inhabit her body and make her become a, a murderous beast and she could possibly lose control. So that little passage I read about, you know, they make up all kinds of excuses as to why girls died and people are already calling her erratic and acting bizarre in public. She really doesn't want a Grey getting in there again and really like just, you know, using her as a vessel to unleash whatever issues they have on the world. So I think that was another reason why she was afraid of Grace. Um, and I like how it slowly starts to become a little bit more clear as we keep reading. As far as Darlington, I still think he's trying to look for something. I'm, I'm not quite sure what he's looking for. But by the end of chapter 18, he seems to be afraid of being forgotten. He keeps at the end, let me go back to chapter 18. Um, at the very end of it, he said, Danny was looking at Alex's old young face, at her dark well eyes, and the lips that remained parted that did not move to speak. She did not step forward. She cast no words of protection. Darlington ended as he'd always suspected he would, alone in the dark. And he goes, before that, he's talking about... Um, he realized in the last moments how few things he had to tether him to the world. What could keep him here? Who knew him well enough to keep hold of his heart? All of his books and music and art and the history and the silent stones of Black Elm, the streets of this town, this town. None of it would remember him. So I, I think he's looking to be remembered. Um, he's afraid of being obsolete or forgotten, much like those old boots that were tossed into the corner. Um... I'm still not quite sure what he's looking for. I think that might be it. And I think he must have been trying to, it's gotta be connected with the bridegroom somehow. I'm not quite sure why he was looking to the bridegroom, but I believe it has something to do with himself. I don't know. Those are just my speculations. Um, but that's all I have to say about these next chapters. I hope you are getting as much out of it as I am. If you got more stuff out of it, I would love to hear your thoughts. Next week, I will be discussing chapters 20 through 26. We are 65% into it. 
and we haven't even hit the climax yet so um yeah shitty outro time sorry guys <laughs> thank you for joining me and i'll catch you in the next podcast